The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're going to be in uh, Luke 23 and a couple other relevant passages as well, if you want to follow along. In the bulletin, there's a place to take notes, no formal outline, really just uh, looking at some key highlights in Luke 23 and some amazing things that happen uh, that accentuate the blessed resurrection truth of Jesus Christ and his death on behalf of sinners. And what I wanted to zero in on and highlight is really one verse or one discussion and interplay that happened between one of the criminals that was on the cross and Jesus. Jesus was crucified with two men, one on his right and one on his left, and the Gospels are very specific to give us the details of that, that Jesus was in the middle and uh, a criminal on the right and on the left. And uh, if we put the four Gospels together, we know that Jesus, it's amazing, Jesus was hanging on the cross from about nine in the morning till about at least three in the afternoon. So that's six hours of hanging on the cross. It's also amazing that as we read the four Gospels, not much information is given about those six hours he was hanging on the cross. Only seven short statements that are given in Scripture of what Jesus said. He could have said more, but if he did, God didn't relay that to us. The seven sayings of Christ were sufficient for us to know, and they're very revealing. And so we're going to look at a couple of those and highlighting specifically what Jesus said to one of these criminals that was hanging on the cross. So let's go ahead and look at a few of the passages. Uh, before I get to the text in uh, Luke 23, I do want to read uh, Matthew 27, which is a parallel account, verses 39 to 44. Matthew 27, 39 to 44. Uh, but before I do, putting the limited information that we have from the four Gospels together about who these criminals were, the Scriptures do say that the two men that were hung on either side of Jesus Christ. They were uh, arrested. They were criminals. The Scripture specifically calls them criminals. Uh, one of the Gospels calls them robbers, so they were thieves. Uh, it is very likely, as we look at the four Gospels together, that these two criminals were a companion of Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas was the criminal who was condemned to death and was also going to be crucified. But at the trial, at Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate decided to let Barabbas go free and crucify Jesus in his place. So it could very well be from the context that these two criminals were with Barabbas. So you had these uh, three evil musketeers, if you will. And more than likely, Barabbas was kind of uh, the one, the leader of the ring because the Scripture says that he was a notorious criminal. And it says repeatedly he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. And also more than likely, Barabbas and his two henchmen were probably Jewish. Uh, first of all, we know that historically that Roman citizens did not get crucified, and crucifixion in this context was usually reserved uh, for those who weren't Roman citizens. Uh, so more than likely, they were Jewish. It could be that they were Jewish zealots, uh, out of control in terms of their zeal for the Jewish nation and their hatred for those who weren't Jews or in the Romans in particular. Uh, but again, Barabbas, just an evil, notorious, murderous thug. And probably got these two guys involved in his dirty deeds. And they were guilty and they were arrested and they were before Pilate and they had a trial and they were condemned to death. And uh, we know that Barabbas was there and present for part of Jesus' trial uh, as Jesus was before Pontius Pilate. So Barabbas probably heard a lot of what was said from Pilate himself, from Jesus' accusers, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, from the fickle mob and crowd down at the street screaming and yelling in rage and in emotion as they were overcome with the influence of the evil Jewish leaders yelling, crucify him, crucify him. No doubt Barabbas and his two partners were there seeing much of this trial that was going on. So it could be that the uh, two criminals on the cross were introduced to Jesus during that trial. They didn't know him when they saw him. He was, could very well be that he was a total stranger to them. They just assumed that he was guilty. 
He was condemned to death, and therefore that was the assumption that they made. He was guilty just like they were. He deserved to die, and we're going to see that. That was their mentality. And Scripture tells us very clearly, especially in Luke 23, that when Jesus was given over to the, Jew, uh, the Jewish leaders to be crucified, uh, these two robbers, criminals, were also given over at the same time. So as Jesus had to carry his cross, and John 19 tells us that Jesus bore his own cross initially, big heavy thing, after having no sleep all night long, several, six different mock trials before Pilate and Herod and the Sadducees and Pharisees, so having gone all night long, it's now 9 in the morning, no sleep, no food, no drink, physically beaten, whipped, beat up, punched, mocked, thirsty, tired, sleep deprived. So physically, uh, Jesus had been through the gauntlet. And now at 9 in the morning, he's asked to bear his own cross and carry this huge, massive limb down the public streets and roads of Jerusalem to the place of execution outside the city. And so John 19 tells us that Jesus began to bear his own cross. And at some point, it was apparent to the Roman soldiers around him, he couldn't bear it anymore, just physically. Probably impossible, wouldn't make it the whole way. And that's when they recruited a, a, a standard by some Jewish man named uh, Simon the Cyrene. And they appointed him to carry Jesus' cross, or at least help him to get it there. But at that time when Jesus was carrying his cross, no doubt these other two criminals were with him because that's what the Gospels tell us. They also were condemned with Jesus. They also bore their crosses with Jesus, either ahead of Jesus or following Jesus down that road to condemnation. And so these two criminals who were guilty, sinners, along with Barabbas, were with Jesus, the sinless Son of God. And when they first met, they probably didn't even know who Jesus was. But then they began to be in close proximity with Jesus Christ from the time that Pilate announced his sentence to the time of carrying the cross and for the next six hours they'd be very close to Jesus and observe much and that is significant because when you're in close proximity with the Lord Jesus Christ either his immediate presence or the truth of his word things happen things happen conviction happens things are solidified permanently and even eternally and that's what happened with these two criminals on either side of Jesus Christ and in the end they both went different directions. And we're going to celebrate the direction of one of these who went the right direction in the end, but he didn't start out the right way. And we're going to see that in Matthew 27. So I want to read that section there uh, at the time of crucifixion. Again, at 9 in the morning was when the crucifixion probably took place. And they put the nails in Jesus' hands, put nails also in his feet on the cross, and on either side they also put the nails in the feet and hands of these criminals on the right and on the left. And as they're hanging there at 9 a.m., here's one of the incidents that began to happen, and it continued to happen for a long period of time, and that was mockery. The sinless Savior was mocked by everyone at the foot of the cross for the most part, save his family and beloved disciple. So Matthew 27, 38 says, At that time two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him. There were just people there to looky-loos who wanted to see what was going on. They, they loved the, the gruesomeness of this all and were fascinated by it. As they walked by, they were hurling abuse. They were mocking Jesus Christ while he was on the cross, wagging their heads, literally, not just their voice, but their whole body and demeanor, mocking him. No doubt most of these people probably didn't know who Jesus was. They probably didn't know he was God in a body. So a lot of what they were doing is in utter ignorance. They didn't have full knowledge of who he was and what the circumstances were. We know that because Jesus said that. He said, Father, forgive them for their ignorance, for they don't know what they do. And in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter said the same thing to the men of Israel. You men of Israel crucified the prince of life in ignorance. So that's probably reference to many of these people, these Jews who got sucked in to the peer pressure and the emotion of the Jewish leaders, and they're mocking him. Uh, verse 39, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, and in the same way the chief priests... So here's the Jewish leadership. They're the ones responsible uh, for getting him arrested and condemned. 
In the same way, the chief priests uh, so and the Sanhedrin, there were 70 of them. They were the Jewish leaders. They were the rabbis. They were the guardians of the Old Testament. They were the teachers of the law. They were the ones that taught about the coming Messiah to their people, condemning and mocking their very Messiah that stood before them on a cross. In fulfillment of the scriptures that they teach. It's amazing. How ironic. These Jewish leaders, these Jewish teachers, they knew Isaiah 53. They probably had it memorized. That the Messiah had to suffer. They knew Psalm 22. They probably had it memorized, probably taught on it this detailed account of how the Messiah would be crucified in the hands and in the feet. These are the Jewish leaders mocking Jesus, their very own Messiah. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking Jesus, mocking an ongoing thing. This happened probably four hours. It started really at the the trial and continued at the time of execution at nine in the morning and probably went on for several hours. Maybe they mocked him the entire six hours he was on the cross, the, the Jewish leadership. Unthinkable. Cursing him, challenging him to come down from the cross, you phony Messiah. Verse 41, uh, in the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and Pharisees were mocking him, saying, verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we shall believe in him. And the, here's the uh, another amazing thing. A prophecy is fulfilled while these Jewish leaders who hate Jesus are condemning him. And here's one of the things that they say as they mock him. Verse 43, they say, He trusts in God, let him deliver him. Now, and if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Maybe unbeknownst to these Jewish leaders, they actually quoted Psalm 22. There was a prediction that at the time the Messiah was crucified, people would mock him with these very words. And out of their mouth, out of their own volition, spontaneously, they quote Psalm 22 that was written a thousand years before Jesus died. That predicted mockers would mock him at the foot of the cross. And that's exactly what they were doing. Not even their own words. They're, they're quoting the words of Scripture and they don't even realize it. In their mockery, fulfilling Scripture, fulfilling prophecy. Which reminds us again, Jesus was not... A victim. Jesus is in charge of the entire thing. Every event, every detail, everybody that was there, the very purpose of this execution, he came to fulfill a mission and die on behalf of sinners. And this confirms it, that he is in charge. Scripture is being fulfilled and Jesus knows it. He's a rabbi. He had these scriptures memorized. We even see uh, falling from his lips all throughout the six-hour period, scriptures coming from Jesus during this entire time. So you've got all these people that are mocking him, people, the rabble mob that's walking by, they're mocking him. Uh, The Jewish leadership, uh, the rulers are mocking him. Uh, From another passage, we see that the Roman soldiers are also chiming in and mocking him. So you've got the rabble, the rulers, the Romans, and then you've got the robbers mock him as well. And that's in verse 44. The thief on the right and on the left, beginning at 9 a.m. and who knows for how long, the robbers also... Both of them together, who had been crucified with Jesus, were casting the same insults at him. So that shows you the heart of these two criminals, these two ruthless, guilty thieves, robbers, cohorts of Barabbas the murderer. And here they are, they've got the front row seat, to the right and to the left, whispering. I mean, they don't even have to talk loud, because Jesus is right there in close proximity in his face. They could see the blood, the sweat, and the tears. And he's right next to them, and it says that these men have no compassion whatsoever for Jesus, don't even know who he is, and they continue to mock him and mock him and mock him and insult him. Like I said, this went on for hours. So that's the thief on the cross, both of them. So at the beginning of the day, neither they were just totally callous and unsympathetic to Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm 22, if you have your Bible, look at Psalm 22 because it is so amazing. And this is a great... I like to read this psalm during Holy Week. We call it, because if you know the Gospels, if you read Psalm 22, you can find just about every phrase, every sentence, every verse in Psalm 22 is fulfilled specifically in detail somewhere in the four Gospels during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his passion. is absolutely amazing. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David, so it was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, a thousand years before Jesus died, a thousand years before all these events transpired at the crucifixion. David wrote this as a prophet, speaking the future. Literally, David was a type of Christ. David was a king. He was a king of the Jews. And the Messiah who would come would be a son of David and a king of the Jews. And that was Jesus, the king, the Messiah. And so this prophecy of Psalm 22 is amazing. The way it starts out, 
Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You've heard that before. That's what Jesus said from the cross. My God, my God. Three hours into the crucifixion, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the entire earth went dark at that time for three hours as God the Father from heaven poured out his wrath on Jesus as a substitute for sinners. Fulfilling this passage, this scripture. Jesus didn't just make that up spontaneously because he was in anguish on the cross, giving up and in grief, saying, oh my God, my God, why, where are you, God? Saying that in ignorance. He was saying this because he knew that he was the predetermined sacrifice for sin, fulfilling Scripture as required from Psalm 22, verse 1, written a thousand years before it happened. And he's declaring to everyone there, especially the Jews, his people, who should know Psalm 22, verse 1, by God, by God, why have you forsaken me? Israel, I am your Messiah. Amazing declaration. Far from my deliverance of the words of my groaning. So this is Jesus hanging on the cross as you read this. Verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, so this is Jesus undergoing that wrath for that last three hours from 12 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yet he acknowledges, God, you are holy. Father, you are holy. This is a righteous punishment because I'm dying on behalf of sinners. And you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Verse 5. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. And then Jesus talks about himself prophetically through David. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Everybody around the cross despised Jesus. They mocked him, every single one of them, except for his mother Mary and John and their immediate friends. But everybody else despised him as they looked at him. Look at the details of verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. It's exactly what they did. They walked by, hurled insults, wagged their heads, sneered, made hissing sounds, literally. In total fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 7, they separate with the lip, they wag the head. It's exactly what the Gospel said. Amazing detail of fulfillment. And yet, verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. There's that prophecy of the very words they would use to mock the Lord Jesus. So... Everybody is mocking Jesus for hours on end, including the two thieves hanging on the cross. Another interesting, if you go back to Luke 23, none of this really is a surprise to Jesus Christ because this whole incident, all this, his death, the way it would happen, the means of crucifixion was all planned in the eternal mind of God before the foundation of the world. Absolutely amazing. And then also in history predicted very specifically through prophecy, starting at Genesis 3.15, where it said the Messiah would be pierced or bruised. That was 4,000 That was uh, 4, years before Jesus died, predicted he would be pierced. So Jesus knew. He had a growing awareness as the God-man, and he knew that everything was on track. Yet he had a real battle with his emotions as a human being, trusting God, and that's why he grappled with God in prayer the night before, thy will be done, thy will be done. Father, take this cup from me, but thy will be done. And that is when Jesus dealt with it psychologically and emotionally, that this is the will of God. I, I, I will obey you, Father. I will submit to your plan of death. And he did. He resigned himself to God the Father's perfect will when he prayed that prayer. And he had this growing awareness and confirmation from the Father that he was on track and the ministry of the Holy Spirit also ministering to Jesus all throughout sustaining him to fulfill his mission. But in Luke 22, here's an amazing statement. At the Last Supper, as Jesus is talking to first his 12 apostles, then Judas leaves, and then he starts talking more intimately with the 11 remaining apostles to put them on notice that he's about to die. And he wants to calm their hearts. He doesn't want them to, to scatter and be lost and feel that they are orphaned. God loves you. I love you. The Holy Spirit will come. He will sustain you. What's about to happen is dramatic and is not a mistake. This is the plan of the Father. This is the plan of me. This is the plan of the Scriptures that you know. So be encouraged. So he's trying to encourage his 11 apostles about about what's about to happen. And, And in that, he says this amazing thing in verse 37 of Luke 22. There at the Last Supper, he says, For I tell you, to encourage them, for I tell you, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. Gentlemen, I'm about to fulfill Scripture. I'm about to die. I'm about to be crucified. And then he quotes uh, specifically at the middle of verse 37. 
from Isaiah 53. And he, he quotes Isaiah to them. Isaiah 53 is the detailed account of the crucifixion of the Messiah, that he would die for sinners. And he tells the 11 apostles, and he quotes Isaiah, and he says, and he was numbered with transgressors. That's what Isaiah 53 verse 12 says. So 800 years before Jesus died, Isaiah the prophet predicted the Messiah would come, he would be crucified, he would die on behalf of sinners, and at his death, at the point of crucifixion, he would die with other people. He would be executed along sinful people. This is a prophecy predicting that Jesus would be crucified with these two criminals. And Jesus lets his disciples know that. This has got to be somewhat encouraging for John later on, the apostle, who John the apostle was sitting at the foot of the cross and maybe the light, who knows, when it went on for John that Isaiah 53 said that Jesus the Messiah would die with sinners on the cross. And Jesus tells him that at the Last Supper and he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. I'm about to die with sinful men. I'm about to be crucified with these two criminals. That's exactly what that's talking about. Absolutely amazing. So the fact that these two criminals were chosen, the fact that they were there crucified with Jesus was not chance, it was not coincidence, it was not accident, it was the providence of God, it was God's sovereign plan. Every detail had to happen the way that God had predicted it to prove and validate that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And so that is this, these criminals, hardened hearts, mocking Jesus, hours on end, hanging on the cross from nine till noon. And then all of a sudden, at about noontime, after three hours of dramatic Change happens in the heart of one of these criminals. It is amazing. Let's look at it. And that's at Luke 23, 39 to 41. Look at the change that transpired and happened of this hardened, guilty, calloused sinner who had been mocking Jesus. Luke 23, verse 39. Uh, Verse 32 says that the two others, the criminals, were being led away, put to death with Jesus. Verse 33 says they crucified Jesus. Verse 34 says the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the first of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross was this amazing statement. Jesus Christ, being crucified unjustly, looks up to the Father and prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Or literally, remit their sins. Cast away their sins. Do away with their sins. For they do not know what they are doing. And what that meant was most of the people there were doing what they were doing in total ignorance. And they would find out later. Jesus isn't just giving a pass. He's not, he's not saying that they don't need to repent of their sin because they do. Because Acts chapter 3 tells us that. They need to repent. Those who are a part of this, doing it in ignorance, are given a chance to repent of their sin and confess Jesus is Lord. Then and only then could they be forgiven. So there are stipulations and conditions for this amazing promise of forgiveness. But that's the heart of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save those who were lost, those who were sinners. And that's the heart of his prayer right here. Father, forgive them. There's no personal retaliation here. This is why he came, to die on behalf of sinners, even those who killed him unjustly. Isn't that amazing? That that is the, the pinnacle of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He said that publicly, by the way. He voiced it. That's the Greek word for saying. He declared this. Out loud, and everybody around him, at least in the vicinity of the cross, could hear this. It probably stunned many of them. Whoa! Who is this man that has such love and forgiveness? And again, those criminals, they had a front row seat as an audience to Jesus. They heard this statement. One of those criminals heard this statement Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They were both angry, but one of those criminals began to be softened by this. By the gracious words of Jesus. Uh, Then the Roman soldiers, they cast lots and divided up Jesus' garments among themselves. Uh, Verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him. So the mocking continues hour after hour. Saved others, let him save himself. Verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, now there was also an inscription above Jesus' head that was hammered there, and it said, the Pilate put there, and it said, this is the king of the Jews. That's what it said. This, You know, that statement is true, isn't it? This is the king of the Jews. And that drove the Pharisees and Sadducees mad. They wanted the sign changed. They told Pilate, change it to, he claims to be the king of the Jews. We don't like that sign because it just, it just declares that he is de facto from you. Pontius Pilate, the governor, the one in charge. And what you say goes, what you say is law. And you've declared that he's the king of the Jews. That irritated him. That was God's providence. 
That was God's sovereignty. God was declaring to the world, Jesus is the king of the Jews. After all, three times Pontius Pilate said publicly in a court of law, I find no fault in him. He is not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. He is the king of the Jews. Absolutely amazing. This is probably the first thing ever put in print about Jesus. And it's true. And it was the only thing put in print about him while he was alive. He is the king of the Jews. Very significant. The thieves on the cross, they saw that sign. They saw that declaration. He professes to be king. He has been declared king. He is the king of the Jews. These criminals were probably Jewish. The reality of this truth and what was on the sign of the cross, God's spirit used that on the heart of one of these criminals to give him more information about the true identity of Jesus, this condemned criminal that he didn't even know when this whole trial started. God's working on this criminal's heart. Whoever this man is crucified next to me with the crown of thorns is forgiving like I've never seen before. Pilate has declared him king of the Jews. This criminal probably grew up going to the synagogue, memorizing his Torah, learning Old Testament stories and scriptures. No doubt studying Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and so many other Old Testament passages. And at some point went awry as a young man. But now God's convicting him. God is wooing him. God is drawing him. Verse 39. So as they're all mocking, uh, one of the robbers continues to mock as well. Again, it's, it's close to noon now, probably. One of the criminals, one of the criminals. Now, that, a distinction is made. Earlier on at 9 o'clock, it was both criminals in harmony mocking Jesus. Now there's a change. One of them is silent. One speaks up. One continues to be a mocker, and one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling, was hurling, continually abusing Jesus still. Was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? The Christ? And look at how selfish he is. I mean, he's sarcastic. He is cynical. He is insincere. And he's totally self-centered in this declaration. Man, if you're the Messiah, get us out of here. Save us. He's not concerned about Jesus as the Messiah. He's concerned about self. Because he says, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Get me off of this cross. And notice, one of the criminals is speaking for the other criminal. He says, save us. That is his plea. So the other criminal who is silent, he's listening to this. He's had a change of heart, or he begins to have a change of heart. He's seen now who Jesus is for two to three hours. The Spirit of God has been working on his heart. He doesn't speak up in concert with the mocker thief on the cross. As a matter of fact, he doesn't say anything. And after listening to what this mocker just said, save us, you phony Messiah, the other thief gets irritated. He's perturbed. He has a righteous indignation. We know that from verse 40, because look how he responds. This, here is the amazing change that took place. But, that's a huge contrast. It is emphatic. No longer did these two criminals think the same way. No longer were they both mockers. But one has changed. But the other criminal on the cross answered. And what did he answer? Rebuking him. Wow, isn't that amazing? He is rebuking this other criminal hanging on the cross for what he says about Jesus. That takes courage. He's rebuking him, and what is he? And he goes further. He says, uh, rebuking him, he said, do you not even fear God? Here's another change that happened. Uh, that thief on the cross at the beginning who didn't know who Jesus was three hours prior now understands that Jesus is probably God in a body, or at least his understanding is growing in that regard, just like the woman at the well, just like any person that Jesus interfaced with personally given time. They couldn't help but see this was God in a body. And this thief now, changes his view and his mind and understanding about who Jesus is. And he says to his partner over there, do you not even fear God? Do you not even realize who you're talking to? This Jesus is not just some man. He's not just another criminal. You mock Jesus, you are mocking God. Isn't that amazing? Boy, and before anybody can be saved, before anybody can become a Christian, they've got to have a proper view about who Jesus is. He's not just a rabbi, not just a religious man, not just a good prophet. He is more than a man. He is sinless. He is creator. He is deity. He is God in a body. That's what you must understand. Jesus has to be more than a man 
to have the ability to save sinners. And that's what this thief begins to comprehend. By mocking Jesus, you are mocking God. And as a result, you condemn yourself. Don't you have any fear? So all of a sudden, this criminal begins to develop a sense of fear, awe, and respect for Jesus Christ and God. His conscience is becoming unseared, if you will. The Old Testament said the beginning of fear is the beginning of true wisdom. Fear of God is where it starts, and that's what this criminal is having, uh, this growing fear and conviction about who Jesus is, and as a result, a growing conviction about who he is as a sinner. And he goes on and testifies that. So the other answer is rebuking. And by the way, doesn't it take courage to rebuke somebody publicly when they are wrong, to rebuke them in an appropriate way? I think about us as Christians, how often we don't speak up and rebuke somebody when they deserve it for all kinds of reasons. Usually fear of man, right? We don't want to speak up on behalf of Jesus in a huge crowd because we're going against the flow and peer pressure and what will people think of me? So we don't speak up for Christ. We don't speak up for God. We don't speak up for truth. And in this context... This is the height of courage that it would take for this man to do that because he's surrounded not just by a mocker on his left or wherever that criminal was. He is surrounded by mockers who aren't hanging on a cross. The Jewish leadership, the Roman robbers, the massive crowd, they were all mocking. So this is amazing, supernatural courage that he had to speak up. He didn't care who was there or what they would say or what mockery he would receive. I am going to speak up for this man, this Jesus. There's a heart change happening on this thief. Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? There's another change that took place in the heart of this sinful criminal on the cross over the last three hours. And it was that he came to recognize his own sin. You know, you can't become a Christian until you recognize you're a sinner. You can't become a Christian unless you repent of your sin. And hardened sinners don't want to do that. That's why when Jesus came preaching, Mark 1, 14 and 15, it said Jesus came preaching the gospel saying, repent and believe. Repent and believe. The first words out of John the Baptist's mouth, repent and believe. You can't become a Christian unless you repent. Repentance is recognizing that you are a sinner before a holy God, that you deserve death, you deserve punishment. Whatever God says is good. And that you are a sinner. You are not worthy. You can't save yourself That is a biblical attitude about your own evaluation regarding your sin and my sin. And sin warranted the eternal death penalty from God. And so this Jewish criminal, he knew that. He's convicted, and he's been growing in his conviction about himself. And so he admits there's this change of heart. In verse 41, he says, And we indeed justly, we are condemned justly. We are guilty. We are sinful. There's the conviction. Isn't that amazing? The change in heart that he went through. We indeed justly. Get this, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. That is the, that is the righteous fruit of repentance. That's what John the Baptist asked for these phony Pharisees when they wanted to get baptized. And he called them hypocrites. You want to get baptized? You truly believe? Then show some fruit. So show some actions regarding a true change in your repentant heart. Because they didn't have it, the Pharisees. This man did. There was real fruit that came out of his life. There will always be real fruit that comes out of a changed heart who's a Christian. Every Christian will bear fruit regardless of how minimal it is at some point. And the fruit is already beginning to grow amazingly on behalf of this criminal on the cross. The fruit of his words, the fruit of his courage speaking up on behalf of Jesus and defending Jesus. The fruit of the statement he makes about his own guilt and the declaration of him being a sinner. This is righteous fruit. He is becoming a changed man. Do not even fear God. We are condemned justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. And here's kind of the crescendo of his transformation and salvation experience. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes that he's not worthy. He recognizes that he deserves to die. He recognizes that Jesus is there and is someone different. He's not a human. He recognizes that Jesus is somehow specially related to the God of the universe and requires fear and respect And then this amazing declaration he makes about Jesus at the end of verse 41 shows us he had a true heart change. He he came to know it could be that Jesus said many other things at the foot of the cross. And if Jesus did, that 
that, that thief was listening and he took it all in and he believed it. That's what changes people are the words of Jesus. You can't be saved apart from the words of Jesus. You can't be saved apart from the gospel. That's Romans chapter 10. How will they hear and be saved without a preacher and the gospel? And whenever Jesus speaks, that is the gospel. That is the changing power. The words of Jesus are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the very heart, mind, motives, conscience of sinful people, wooing them, convicting them, drawing them, either drawing them to Christ or repelling them in disobedience. Jesus' words are efficacious. Jesus' words are life-changing. And we see that here, the culmination, verse 41. It's amazing. After the rebuke, after the acknowledgement of his own sin, he said, we deserve to die, but this man, this Jesus has done nothing wrong. Wow, that was a true statement. How in the world did he know that? Well, it could be because he's been watching Jesus for three hours. Listening to Jesus for three hours. Could very well be, and I believe that he was there with Barabbas at the trial, at least part of the trial, or Pontius Pilate in Luke 23, three times formally declared, slamming his gavel about Jesus, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And finally, the Spirit of God took that decree and made it resonate supernaturally on the mind of this criminal to the point that he believed it. Because experientially, he had first-hand knowledge. Indeed, this man is not guilty. You've got to have a right view of who Jesus is before you can become a Christian. You have to believe that he is more more than God. You have to believe that he is deity. You have to have fear and reverence for him. You have to believe that he never sinned because he couldn't die for sinners if he had ever sinned. He was the spotless Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had to be perfect, pristine, holy, God himself in a body. And that's what this criminal came to realize. This man has done nothing wrong. So he had a right view of Jesus and a right view of himself, and that's how you get saved. Like I said, well, how did this heart change happen? Well, like I said, it was a point of three hours observing and watching Jesus. Again, watching Jesus' compassion. Because remember, I said that the thieves on the cross were probably near Jesus as they carried their own crosses, and the, the crowds were bustling around making two huge lanes and a path that they could walk down and they're carrying their crosses and thereby Jesus was carrying his cross and at the beginning when Jesus was carrying his cross in agony and the thieves were able to stand there by and listen in on conversations as some people mocked him and others felt compassion for them and so in Luke 23, 27 listen to this there were following Jesus as he was carrying his cross a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting so there's a group of women who were mourning his death these this weren't necessarily Mary and Magdalene all those people This could just be a crowd of bystanders of Jewish women who had seen Jesus, had heard him preach before, had seen miracles, had benefited from the free food that he gave out, and they knew that he was a good man. Maybe that's all they knew, and that he had been condemned, and they were in sorrow, and they're screaming out, beating their breasts, mourning on behalf of Jesus who was being condemned. It says mourning and lamenting. They were going on and on, and it was loud and vociferous, and they were making a scene, and they got close enough to see Jesus in proximity to him so that, that he could actually talk to them while he's carrying his cross. And that's what happened. And so in verse 28, Jesus turning to these ladies said, he's not, he doesn't welcome their sympathy and say, oh, thank you for feeling sorry for me. I deserve it. You're right. I was unjustly accused. Can you please help me? He doesn't do that. And he doesn't rebuke them either. But he puts everything in its proper perspective. Jesus is the Savior. He is not the helpless victim here. The ones that are the victims are the lost sinners. These ladies are lost sinners. They need Jesus more than Jesus needs their help. So even after being brutalized and carrying this cross, Jesus is selfless. He's thinking of others the entire time instead of himself. Every step of the way of that six-hour crucifixion, Jesus is thinking of others, not himself. And it begins right here with these ladies. They're trying to show him compassion. And Jesus turns around and he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem, you Jewish women, you women who reside here in this blessed capital city of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children and your future generations and what's going to happen in 70 AD when the city is decimated and what's also going to happen in the future during the tribulation when Jerusalem is utterly wiped out. 
by the Antichrist. That's what he was doing. He was making a prophecy. Verse 29, he says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren. Blessed are the women who don't have babies. That was just the opposite of what Jews believed. They thought it was a curse for women to not have a child. But Jesus says someday it's going to be reversed. Blessed are the women who don't have babies. Blessed are those who are barren. Why? And the womb that never bore and the breast that never uh, nursed. Why? Verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Because at that time, under uh, the Romans in 70 AD and in the future, when judgment comes on Jerusalem and the ruthless Romans and the ruthless Antichrist start murdering the Jews and chasing them all over the place and even killing their women and their children, those who don't have children at that time will be able to run away uh, quicker. And also they will be glad that they're not seeing their babies being murdered in front of their eyes. That's what Jesus is saying here. But he literally cares for them. Notice he's not caring for self. I care for you. I care for my people, the Jews. So it's this heart of compassion that these criminals saw every step of the way. And then the first thing, when he gets on the cross, we already said it. Jesus doesn't rail and retaliate and spit on the crowd. He says, Father, forgive them. Totally selfless. This criminal is seeing this every step of the way. It's having an impact on him of who Jesus is. It's changing his very heart. Then he gets to see that even later, as at the foot of the cross, there's John the Apostle and Mary. And Jesus doesn't say, help me, John. Mother Mary, help me. It's Jesus ministering to them. Woman, behold your son. John, take care of my mother. So that contributed significantly to the change of heart in this criminal watching Jesus for three hours, his compassion towards people, the words that he said, although they were few. Another impactful thing that probably... Uh, made a difference in this man's life was the things that Jesus didn't say. Jesus' silence was deafening for that six hours. His silence. Before Pilate, he said nothing. Before Herod, he said nothing. As these crowds mocked him along the road, he said nothing. As he's hanging from the cross for six hours, he didn't retaliate back. He said nothing. Isaiah 53 said he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, totally silent and did not retaliate in his words. And Peter picks up on that in his epistle, that that was the sign and the mark of the Messiah, the blessed Messiah. And the thief on the cross saw that. And it made Jesus's character stand out. This man is more than a man. No man suffered like this man. No man remained silent like this man. So God is using so many different things. He's truth and circumstances and actions and words and attitudes, all of this just to bring one soul to himself in conviction and repentance. And that's what he's doing. What else made this man change? No doubt it was uh, John chapter 16 where Jesus promised that the work of the Holy Spirit goes on. And he said, I will send my Holy Spirit to come and work on the hearts of people. I will send the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. No human being comes uh, to Christ. No human being becomes a Christian without first the Spirit of God working on their hearts, doing supernatural transactions of conviction, of removing satanic blindness, of removing the blinders of the darkness of sin. Salvation is a supernatural work that begins with God, for He is Savior. And He always does that in conjunction with the work of the Spirit of God, working on His heart. For six hours, the Spirit of God invisibly was working on this man's heart, his conscience, his mind, everything, to open his eyes so he could see the glory of the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. It's awesome. So this man believed. This man changed. This man gets saved. I guess if you could sum it all up, what changed this man? Or why did this man change? Because he believed in the gospel. He believed in the good news. What's the good news? The good news is the message about Jesus, who he is, what he did for sinners. And for six hours, this thief on the cross got to see firsthand all these truths. He saw Jesus, the God-man dying. He saw everything else. He believed in the gospel. He believed in Jesus. And that's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. It's a supernatural work of God. Is it the gospel? It is the good news. It is all about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did. This man believed the gospel, and Jesus promises to him he will have salvation then and eternally. Here's the great promise, and this is how the story concludes. It is awesome. Verse 42, another correct thing that this man did is he went personally to Jesus. Believing all this, he went personally to Jesus. He didn't go through a human mediator. He didn't go through a false god. He didn't go through an idol. He went directly to the source that is Jesus himself. And he went to Jesus personally because the proper text says this in verse 42, and the criminal was saying 
continued to say repeatedly, begging, pleading with Jesus. And he was saying, Jesus, isn't that beautiful? He called him by his first name. Here's the God of the universe in a human body, and he feels the freedom to address Jesus by name. Jesus, and we're reminded of Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, when the angel told Joseph and Mary to name this child Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means Savior, and God will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Savior. What a, what a beautiful portrait. He knows who Jesus is. Jesus, remember me. Remember me. So somehow... He knows that Jesus has authority. He knows that Jesus is God. He knows that God is in, Jesus is in control of the future of what happens after the grave. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's talking about. Remember me after I die. Remember me in the future. Remember me at the time of judgment. That's what he's saying. That's what he realizes about who Jesus is. Jesus, remember me. And look at how personal it is. Remember me. Do you care about me, God? Jesus does. Very personal. Jesus, remember me. Forgive me. Redeem me. Rescue me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is why I believe this man was a Jew. Because that phrase right there, when you come into your kingdom, is an explicitly very specific, technical, Jewish, eschatological phrase from the Old Testament in reference to the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. This man is recognizing that Jesus is the judge, the king, and the Old Testament Messiah and was the key to salvation. So he's crying out to Jesus for forgiveness and redemption and in the future, at the end of the age, render judgment that is uh, good to me, Lord Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom as the king. You are indeed what Pilate said, the king of the Jews. That's awesome. And Jesus answers his prayer. Here's an immediate answer to prayer. Wouldn't you, don't you wish Jesus would answer your prayers like this? Boom! Instantaneously, verbally, orally, very specifically. Well, he did. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, truly, verily I say to you. That was an authoritative proclamation that Jesus said that is absolutely binding from the mind and the plan of God. The plan will not deviate. The plan will not change. This is the utmost total security. You can know this and you can know that you can know this. You can stake your eternal life on this. That was the promise of the word verily from Jesus who was God. What a promise. And you know what? If you're a Christian... And you know, Jesus Christ, personally, this promise is for you. This promise is for me. This is what Easter, Resurrection Sunday is all about. Verily, I say to you, we're all going to die. We are all going to die. We all face the, sent, uh, the death sentence of the death penalty, physically speaking. But if you're a Christian, you won't die eternally. This is the good news. Verily, I say unto you, this is for you, you criminal, who's been transformed and believed. Truly, I say to you. And the terminology is very specific. The first word in that phrase, today you shall be with me in paradise. Literally, it's today with me you will be. And Jesus puts the word today at the front of the sentence to make it emphatic. Today, this very day, you will be with me. That was comforting for this criminal for many in many respects. Number one, that he's going to be with Jesus today. That was awesome. Another, on a practical level, it was not uncommon for people being crucified to hang out there for three to four days, alive, in excruciating anguish, shame, and pain. And Jesus guarantees this guy, I'm going to be merciful to you, you're going to die today. What a practical relief as well. So that's the promise, truly I say today, to, to, truly I say to you, today, this very day, you shall be with me. You shall be with me. Where is heaven? It's being with Jesus, isn't it? Where does somebody go when they, immediately when they die and leave this life and breathe their last breath? Where do they go? They go immediately into the presence of Jesus. They don't go into soul sleep. They don't go into purgatory. They don't go into limbo. They don't go into non-existence. They don't go to who knows where, nirvana. If you're a believer, the moment you breathe your last, you go to be with Jesus. That is Jesus' promise. That is heaven. And he gets even more specific. You will be with me, the Messiah, the King, the Judge. and where, So that's who he's going to be with. Where will we be, Jesus? You will be with me in paradise. Paradise is heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, the Apostle Paul defined paradise as the third heaven, where God resides, where the angels are, where everything is amazing and perfect. Paradise is heaven. That's what Jesus said. Today, when you die... The moment you breathe your last, you will be with me, your precious Messiah, Savior, Lord, and friend. And we'll be in the paradise of God of eternal heaven forever with God the Father and all the saints and all the angels. 
That's where you will be. That is good news. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And should anybody question that paradise was heaven where God the Father is, they can just go down a few verses to verse 46. And at the end of the six hours, just before Jesus' death, in verse 46 says, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice, he screamed out a prayer to the Father. His work had been done. He had fulfilled his mission. And then he prays this, and he quotes Scripture as he prays it. He fulfilled Psalm 22 that God asked him to do. And here is his prayer. Father, Father, into thy hands. Father, into your hands. Father, into your presence. Father, into your immediate presence in the third heaven. I commit my spirit. What was Jesus saying? Father, I'm coming to you right now. I'm returning to you. Just like he said in John 17, verse 5. When I breathe my last... He'll be catapulted and launched immediately into the third heaven, back with the Father where He had been for all eternity. And by the way, I'm bringing somebody with me. I'm bringing guests with me. I'm bringing this criminal who's totally forgiven of all of his sin. That's heaven. That's the gospel. That is good news. And that is the meaning of Jesus' death. And that is the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ says to you, says to me, and says to anyone who will come and believe, Verily I say unto you, Verily, I say unto you, the moment you die, if you believe in me, you know me personally, that very day you will be with me in paradise, in heaven, with the Father, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for this blessed day you've given us. God, I thank you for every person that you brought here today. Thank you for the power of your scriptures. I thank you that you use them literally to change hardened hearts and soften them and save souls for all eternity. Thank you for giving us this example of one of the first saved souls by virtue of the efficacious death of Jesus Christ, a criminal, a sinner, a pathetic, hardened mocker that you changed. God, that gives us hope. We are no better than him. We are no worse. And yet you are a God of grace. Continue to work in our hearts, Lord, and change us. And those who don't know you, God, keep wooing them and softening them and using the events of their life and the work that you're doing, the truth of your word, the power of your spirit, the exhortation of believers to draw people to you that they might be saved. And give us a heart of compassion like Jesus who looks upon sinners not down their nose or down our noses in judgment, but... We plead with you, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them until they realize what they're doing and repent and might be saved. So we commit our time together to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.